beginning in verse 2 through verse 18. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychius will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that is taking place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. Those are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, now we give these few moments to attend to your word, and we pray that you would bless our time, uh, not merely for our own sake, but Father, you know we need it. But we pray that your spirit would accompany the preaching of your word, the word that the spirit inspired, for the glory and honor of your great name. For we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, we do come to the end of our time in the marvelous little book of Colossians. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has indeed shown us the unsurpassed glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, as we've been in this last section of the letter, we've seen that being mindful of the glory of the Lord Jesus will be made manifest in our lives through our relationships. In other words, our relationship with Jesus is going to impact our relationship with other people. And so being a disciple of Jesus will show up in our homes. It'll show up in our marriages. It'll show up in our relationships with other Christians, and it will show up, we saw two weeks ago, in our work. In our text for this morning, we're going to see that this kind of Christian discipleship is not the result of a programmatic checklist. It's not a list merely of do's and don'ts. 
this kind of life, this kind of discipleship is also not, strictly speaking, it's not a science. Rather, it's an art. And like any art, it requires a certain amount of skill. It requires practice. And above all, as we're going to take from the Apostle Paul's words this morning, it requires a particular kind of wisdom. Now, thankfully, in the day and age in which we live, uh, we are seeing a sort of pushback against sort of living by numbers and living purely by science, and here's the equation when you do it. But we are seeing a sort of uh, renaissance of being mindful of artful living. Think of books like Julia Child's The Art of French Cooking, or one of my favorite uh, podcasts or one of my favorite websites is entitled, actually, The Art of Manliness. And so we are discovering and we're mindful again in a sort of one-size-fits-all world that, no, there are pieces of this that uh, must be bespoke. They must be made to measure, and it requires wisdom on our part as we think through these things. And so as we conclude the book of Colossians, you see on page 5 in your bulletin an outline for our time together, and there you'll see the big idea for this final section in the book of Colossians. And here's the big idea. Living as a disciple of Jesus is a relational art. Living as a disciple of Jesus is a relational art. Three points we want to make this morning. The first one is this. Uh, we are encouraged, in fact, Paul commands us to pray for a particular kind of word ministry. Pray for a particular kind of word ministry. Now, in the very opening verses of the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul informed the Colossians that he was praying for them. And let me just read for you, as by way of reminder, let me just read for you uh, what exactly he was praying for them. In Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, Paul says this, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to this glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, as we saw when we made our way through that passage, that's a powerful prayer. It's a very pointed prayer. And it's a prayer that in a great number of ways runs pretty counter to how we would normally pray for those in our lives. Typically, we pray that they would be healthy. We pray uh, that the Lord would meet their needs. And we pray in this sort of vague way that God would be with them and watch over them. But Paul prays in a particular way. He prays in a very powerful way for the Colossians. And now he asks them to return the favor. Paul desires that they would pray for him. And he tells them in particular what he would like them to pray for. Now, friends, it's striking exactly what Paul wants them to pray for. And let's pause here and just remind ourselves of what's going on in Paul's life. 
Paul is not, as Amy and I will be next Sunday, in Cancun on vacation. He's not back home in Tarsus visiting family. He's not in Jerusalem because there's some great feast day coming on. He's not in Corinth seeing all the great wonders of that metropolitan and cosmopolitan city. Uh, No, Paul, in the moment in which he writes these things, is in Rome, chained between two members of the Praetorian Guard. Paul's in the slammer. And yet, as he asks God's people to pray for him, did you notice what he does not mention? He does not mention the fact that he would like to not be in jail. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm Paul and I'm in prison, and as you read through the later uh, verses of, of the book of Acts, it's, it's striking, isn't it, that Paul, uh, as he stands before Felix, Felix says to him, hey, Paul, and I'm paraphrasing now, listen, big fella, I was going to let you go because you're innocent, but you appealed to Caesar. And since as a Roman citizen, you appealed to Caesar, my hands are tied, and so to Caesar you must go. So here's Paul, chained between two guys, and it's his own fault that he's there. He could be free, but he's not. So it is really shocking and I think really striking in the day and age of in which I want God to do what I want God to do when I want God to do it. And doesn't God understand that he's there to give me my best life now? Paul doesn't say, hey, at the same time, pray that I could get out of the slammer. No, verse four, he says, excuse me, verse three, he says this, at the same time, Pray also for us that God may open a door for us for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Paul is not concerned about his imprisonment, but about how God is going to use the circumstances in his life to forward the gospel. See, Paul can't control his circumstances, but he can control how he speaks and how he ministers the word of God. And so that's Paul's great desire. Hey, pray for me that in this context, I can do a particular kind of word ministry. And you see there then, under uh, the first point, exactly the kind of word ministry that he wants to do. First of all, he wants it to be clear. Now, he points out that he's proclaiming a mystery, and it's not a mystery in the sense in which we think about it, right? This is not something written by Agatha Christie. Uh, Last night, Amy and I watched uh, Murder on the Nile, the the updated one that uh, Kenneth Branagh did, and if so, if you are a fan of Agatha Christie and you have Hulu, you ought to watch it because it's really good. And Kenneth Branagh as Hercule Poirot is phenomenal. So... But that's not the kind of mystery we're talking about. It's excited as some of us who are nerdy that way want to get excited about it. That's not what he's talking about. What he means when he says mystery is this. He means that from Genesis chapter 3 on, God's people have been wondering, how is God going to keep this great promise? See, God promised in Genesis chapter 3, that the seed of the woman was going to crush the head of the serpent. 
And so from Genesis 3 on, we've been looking for that seed. And we realize it's not Abel because he's dead. It's not Cain because he killed his brother. It's not Noah. It's not Abraham. It's not David. We keep waiting to see how God is going to fulfill this wonderful and glorious promise that he's made. And finally, we learn in the Gospels that all the promises of God have found their yes and amen in this man named Jesus. But then this Jesus guy goes and gets himself crucified. Now, God resurrects him in power, but it seems strange, doesn't it, that the one who's going to defeat Satan would do so by dying himself. And yet, as we make our way through the Old Testament, and as we get into the Gospels, we understand that that is exactly what God is doing. Friends, that's the mystery. How is God going to keep this great promise? How is God going to redeem a people for himself? Well, he's going to do so through a suffering Messiah. He's going to die not for his own sin, but for the sin of the people that he's seeking to redeem. Now, this idea that Paul wants to understand and he wants he's not concerned about the circumstances in his own life, but he's concerned about how God's going to forward the gospel. That's a common theme for him. As is this idea that, hey, I'm proclaiming a mystery. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned and I want to make sure that as I proclaim how God has revealed his redemptive purposes here and now in the work of his son, Jesus Christ, I want it to be made clear. And as we're going to see in verses 5 and 6, there are some obstacles to that. And so Paul wants to make sure that the message he is proclaiming is understood and understood rightly. When I was working for T4 Global, uh, we would get these all these really wonderful sort of anecdotal stories about ways in which, as Westerners, we're really good about not making the gospel clear to folks who don't share our kind of cultural background. So there was occasion in which uh, there was a group of folks uh, from the South. They're always from the South, it seems. And these folks were walking around, and they uh, were going literally hut to hut in villages. And they would ask the question, hey, do you know Jesus? One elderly man uh, invited them in and sat them down and said, listen, I've never heard of this Jesus guy, but from the way you're describing him, it sounds like he's running for office. I'd vote for him because he sounds pretty amazing. Uh, one other individual said to them, I've never heard of Jesus, but you know what? Our village is pretty small. If you would go to a bigger village, they tend to get more news and they probably know this guy you're looking for. See, it's really easy, isn't it, sometimes to talk about Jesus in a way that has lots of insider language and lots of insider lingo and make it not clear. And so Paul's prayer is that the mystery of what God has done through Jesus would be made clear through his preaching. Now in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19, which sort of parallels the end of the book of Colossians, Paul prays that he would be bold. Now, let's think about it. He's literally chained between two members of the Praetorian Guard. Uh, he's there, as it were, at Caesar's goodwill. 
one might think it would be wise and in the interest of self-preservation to not say anything that Caesar or his household would find offensive. And yet the basic Christian confession that Jesus Christ is Lord would be horribly offensive to someone like Caesar. And so Paul prays that he would not be afraid of those who are around him, but rather he, the fear of the Lord would animate his preaching and his speaking. He prays that he would be bold. Likewise, as we're going to see coming up, he prays that his words would be gracious. And above all that, he wants to behave in a way that is wise. That's the kind of word ministry that the Apostle Paul wants to do. And by the way, friends, that's not just a necessity in Paul's day. It's not just something that we would long to see in the life of the mighty Apostle Paul. It's something that we would long to see in our own churches. It's something we would long to see in our own presbytery. I would selfishly entreat you to pray this way for your own pastor and for those who uh, have opportunity to stand in the pulpit here at Grace Church. That the proclamation of the word of God would be clear, bold, gracious, and wise. Secondly, Paul uh, desires them, part of one of the arts that they need to sort of capture here is that they need to learn the art of living and speaking wisely. Note, that's how he begins. Verse 5, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. And by outsiders, he's talking now about non-Christians. And make the best use of the time. Now that word time is an interesting little Greek word. It's the Greek word kairos. It's not the word chronos, which is a general use of the word for time, but kairos speaks about a very particular moment, a moment that is filled with not just potential, but has a, a very expected outcome or possibility. So let's put it this way. Uh, right now, there is a particular member in our congregation who has been, will experience, Lord willing, uh, nine months of uh, maternity chronos. And then there will be a kairos moment. It's time. We need to go now. And at the end of that kairos moment, we expect something particular to happen. We expect a very cute and probably very long and tall baby girl to enter into the world. So Paul says, listen, make the best use of the kairos. You're in a kairos moment. As you're talking to non-Christians, you don't know all that the Lord is doing in their lives. And so listen, uh, do it with wisdom. Because while they're still alive, guess what? They can still turn from their sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
while they're still alive, they can still repent and believe in the gospel. While they're still alive, they can hear and be turned and be healed. But once they're no longer alive, that Kairos moment has passed. Now, you would think at that point that Paul would then follow it up by saying in verse 6, so let them have it. Give them both barrels all the time. They are a bunch of backslidden, pagan, sinning dirtbags. No, look at verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious. Seasoned with salt. I love, there's an old southern expression, a graciousness is the art of being a dear. It's a wonderful way to think about it. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Now, there are good reasons why Paul wants the Colossians to operate this way. It isn't just that they have this kairos moment, a moment that once it's gone, it's just gone. But there are cultural reasons in which uh, that Paul wants them to operate this way. You see, the early Christians, uh, and this is really interesting, early Christians were thought of as being atheists. Because who in the world uh, doesn't have a statue or an idol. There's no vis there were no visible gods in their places of worship. Well, how the heck are you supposed to worship a god you can't see? Like you got to have an idol. You're, if you don't have an idol there, you're clearly an atheist. Or many of them thought the Christians were atheists because they were walking around saying that there's only one god. Only atheists think there's one god or barbarian. Uh, furthermore, not only were they atheists, but uh, their neighbors thought that the early Christians were unpatriotic. See, it was common practice in uh, the day and age in which Paul is writing. Uh, every home, or at least well-to-do homes, would have had, there would have been a bust of Caesar. And you would, to show your patriotism and your love for the empire and your adherence to Caesar as Lord, you would burn incense to the emperor. Well, Christians didn't do that. And because they didn't do it, people thought, well, they're, they're unpatriotic. They're seditious. And furthermore, uh, these Christians were immoral because they practiced a kind of weird kind of incest. You see, they'd call one another brother and sister and then get married. Well, there's a word for people who marry their sister. Since uh, my wife's family is from Kentucky, I'll say we call them West Virginians. But typically, the word we would use for that is incestuous. And so for all those reasons, Paul says to the church, walk wisely, speak graciously, but do so with speech that's seasoned with salt. Now, salt we know is a preservative. It's the way in which food was kept and cured in the ancient world. Salt, furthermore, has the benefit of making you thirsty. It's why if you go to your favorite neighborhood watering hole, they will shove peanuts or pretzels or whatever at you as fast as they possibly can because it will make you thirsty. 
Salt, as you know, adds flavor. Salt is very distinct in flavor. If you put salt on your tongue, you're not going to sit there and go, I can't tell. Is that, is, that, uh, is that sage? Is that oregano? No, salt is very distinct. And it adds and brings out flavor. I love the words of William Hendrickson. He says this, salt has pungency and flavor. Salt, speech flavored with salt is accordingly not empty or insipid, but thought-provoking and worthwhile. It is not a waste of time. Such speech does not repel, it attracts, it has spiritual charm. That's the kind of speech that Paul desires the Colossians to have. Well, if that wasn't enough, he then goes on to say, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. In other words, this again is not a one-size-fits-all approach. If someone comes to you and they have this particular issue in their life, Paul says, listen, I want you to be wise and gracious. I want you to have something meaningful to say to them. Now, some of you already know how hard this can be. As you think about the lives and the circumstances and the conversations that you have with your friends and with your family and with your co-workers, you know that you are confronted with a myriad of challenges. How do you speak about racial relations? How do you speak about issues related to gender? How do you speak about politics? How do you talk about abortion? How do you talk about whether or not the designated hitter in baseball is really actually a good idea? There are all sorts of deep, heavily laden issues with which Paul says, listen, be gracious, be wise, let your speech be seasoned with salt. It's also a reminder that it's possible to say the right thing, but say it in the wrong way. Paul challenges us for our words to be both truthful and beautiful. He wants us to be wise but he also wants us to be winsome. Paul's prayer and Paul's command to God's people is that we would learn the art of living and speaking wisely. Thirdly and finally, and we'll go quicker on this one, I promise, we need to be mindful of those who labor on your behalf. We need to be mindful of those laboring on your behalf. Paul concludes the letter with a list of nine different names. Nine people whom they either know or who are coming to them or whom they ought to know. Now, what's interesting is in Pauline studies, there are scholars who think that all these names proves that Paul didn't write Colossians. That whoever wrote it is giving all these names because he's trying to cover for the fact that he's not really Paul. That seems to be the sort of backward argument. They also want to argue for the fact that this section doesn't really fit with the rest of it. But if we understand that Paul is talking about a kind of Christian life and a kind of discipleship 
that is relationally tied and relationally driven, then how the Colossian church responds to and receives and reacts to and welcomes or doesn't welcome these fellow laborers in Christ is going to say a lot about their walk with Christ. So this last section isn't just this sort of add-on chunk by some weirdo who's pretending to be Paul. No, this is the continuation of the theme that we've already seen. Being a disciple of Jesus is fundamentally relationally driven. It starts with our relationship with God as we've been made right with Him through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. And it flows then to our relationship within our home, within our work, uh, our relationship within our church, the relationship to outsiders, and now the relationship to those who are laboring on our behalf. This is a picture of the larger body of Christ as folks are engaged in gospel ministry. Now, one of the things that it does remind us, it's interesting, isn't it, is uh, that Paul just takes for granted that this is not a consumer-centric approach to life. In fact, it's a reminder here that uh, being a disciple of Jesus means that your life is no longer primarily about you. Rather, your life is about God. And your life is about serving God's people. Uh, we're reading in adult Sunday school, and if you haven't been coming, I, I would just encourage you to come. It's not too late. We can order more books if you don't have one. Uh, but the book we're reading right now by Mike Horton is just fantastic. And there's this wonderful reminder both this week and then in the chapter for next week that uh, as we think about vocation or as we think about job, uh, oftentimes in our culture, we put it out there as well. It's my chance to find my thing. This is what I do. This is what fundamentally makes me me. And Horton and the Bible, I would argue, say that no, at different times in our lives, we're going to have different callings. And those different callings are going to be there because that calling is the way that God uses you to meet the needs of those who are around you. And so Horton will talk about the fact that, yes, he was a seminary professor, and then he was a single guy, and then he got married. So guess what? Part of his calling changed. He couldn't just spend 90 hours a week being a seminary professor and writing books and being really, really ridiculously smart. No, he had a wife, and he was called then to be her husband, and then they had triplets. So then, as he points out, he was called to diaper duty. And he took great pride in how quickly he could change three diapers in rapid succession. But that requires understanding calling as not just your opportunity to find your thing. How easy would it be for a guy like Mike Horton to be like, dude, I'm like literally the smartest guy in the room. Changing diapers is beneath me. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he understands that his calling, his vocation, is the opportunity for God to use him to meet the needs of those who are around him. I love the way that Paul speaks of these folks. He uses words like encourage, faithful, beloved. If he comes to you, verse 10, welcome him. 
These men have been a comfort to me. By the way, verse 12, Epaphras is struggling on your behalf. He has worked hard for you. Paul is letting them know that there are folks within the body of Christ who are laboring faithfully for their benefit. And when they come, Paul says, I want you to listen to them. I want you to welcome them. I want you to both encourage and be encouraged by them. Friends, it's yet another reminder that we are not ourselves by ourselves. Yes, God calls us to faith in Christ as individuals, but then when he does so, he brings us into a family. And he brings us into this larger body of Christ. And so this morning, I'm mindful and thankful for guys like Mike Horton. Guys who can encourage us in their writing and in their work. I'm thankful for people like Simon. I'm thankful for the folks at Twin Schemes. I'm thankful for all of those through whom our partnership, we get to labor in the gospel in Scotland and in Kenya. We get to labor in the gospel on the University of Nebraska and Lincoln campus because of the relationships that we have with these brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, listen, those are beautiful things. And we need to be mindful of the folks who are laboring and ministering and doing so on our behalf. They are meeting our needs because they're being faithful to what the Lord has called them to. In just a few moments, we're going to come to the Lord's table. And just like Christian discipleship, the Lord's table speaks to relationships. It is a relationally driven place. At the table, God speaks to his people. He says to us, I am your God and you are mine. The table also speaks to the relationships that we have to one another. In fact, when Paul is giving instructions to the church in Corinth, he says to them, hey, listen, uh, some of you, before you come to the table, you need to sit down with your brother or sister in Christ because you got mess you need to work out. That's a dynamic paraphrase. And so the table reminds us, again, that we are not ourselves by ourselves, but rather we are a part of a family. And we have been engrafted into this larger family of God. But the table also speaks to the relationships between God's people and God and those who are not currently God's people. In other words, the table distinguishes. It discerns. And so if you're coming to the table, please understand, it's not because you're awesome, it's because God is gracious. If you're coming to the table, it's not because you've earned your spot, it's because God in his grace and in his mercy has drawn you and called you to himself. And now through the table, he reminds you and he encourages you and he strengthens you. You are not your own. You belong to your father. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you call us to this kind of life. Uh, forgive us for thinking it's just this kind of paint by numbers, follow the rules and everything goes 
uh, Lord, we are challenged when we think about all that is required uh, to live and speak wisely. And so we would pray that even this week, as we have opportunity, and as you open doors to us, uh, that we would indeed be gracious and yet salty. That, Father, we would recognize the urgency of the Kairos moment that we are in. And having been, uh, we pray, encouraged and empowered and strengthened and equipped by a particular kind of word ministry, we pray that that would then be made manifest in the way in which we live and the way in which we speak amidst a world that has lots of reasons to think we are crazy. We ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.